Hello and welcome to yet another solo episode of What's That Noise. I am your host, Derek Silva. Unfortunately, yet again, not joined by my co-host, Dr. Tommy Cook, who's over across the pond in Germany completing some research. But he will, I promise, get back here shortly. Today we'll be sitting down with Dr. Jeffrey Preston, Assistant Professor of Disability Studies at King's University College at Western. We'll be chatting about issues of accessibility, Jeff's work as a community mobilizer and inspirational speaker, and there may or may not be a reference to the one and only, a favorite of the show really, Aubrey Graham, aka Drake. Port Elgin, Ontario, Jeff was diagnosed with congenital muscular dystrophy at the age of three months, which requires him to use an electric wheelchair. Throughout his life, Jeff has advocated for the needs of himself and others with disabilities, hoping to live an independent and barrier-free life. Jeff completed his Doctorate of Media Studies at Western University in 2014, and his first book, The Fantasy of Disability, was published by Rutledge in 2016. I met Jeff in fall of 2017 and have really witnessed all the amazing things he's been doing around London and in the field of disability studies more generally. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing great. Term is over, so I am doing uh, fantastic. Grading done, submitted, it's, it's everything. all done. It's, uh, I'm free. I read a book last week. You read a book? Yeah, it was amazing. I was like, I remember what words are. <laughs> great. I still know how to read. Oh, indeed. I, I did the same. The first week off uh, classes, I decided to read a book. Uh, and it was a book not related to my research, which was even yep. better. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. I was like, I want to read something fun. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I read the sellout, um, by beauty and it's, uh-huh. it's like a dark satire. Yeah. Um, maybe not fun is maybe not the right word, but it also may have been the funniest book I've ever read in my uh-huh. life. It was fantastic. Interesting. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to yeah, borrow check this it out. That, yeah, already. And then, uh, Mr. Beatty, if you're listening, I will take the royalty check now. <laughs> Send it on. I've done my duty. That's good. That's good. You're you're a, a hype man. Yeah, <laughs> entrepreneur. I'd like to prefer that phrase. Wonderful. So Jeff, uh, I've known you for now. I would say uh, eight months. Almost a year. Yeah, yeah. almost a year now. Uh, we met uh, in our first, both of our first terms, uh, teaching full time at uh, King's University College. Yeah. yeah. Um, but our listeners don't know you. Yeah. Um, so why don't you? Give a brief introduction to yourself and sure. to your work more generally sure. for our yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. So my name's Jeff Preston. Um, I am an assistant professor in disability studies uh, here at Cleveland University College. Um, my research is uh, really at the crossroads of um, media and culture, disability, and uh, disability and policy. Um, so I'm really interested in the ways that we think about, the ways that we talk about, the ways that we represent disability. Uh, and the ways in which I think those stories reveal to us a lot about those who are not disabled, and I think the ways that they reveal to us how far away we are from a true disability justice. Mm. I, and I think that 
um, in reading your book, and I'm going to give the book a shout out, The Fantasy of Disability Images yeah. of Loss in Popular Culture, um, yeah. published in 2016. Yeah, and it's in paper book now, so it's you can buy it oh. for under $100. Beautiful. Yeah, the academic publishing game, <laughs> um, which we might chat about in a little while. But yeah, I think that that book does a really good job in sort of flipping the script or turning the gaze, as you put it, um, yeah. uh, off of uh, representations as merely representations, but also what they reflect um, about uh, the subject or about or about the object and the subject of, of what we're talking about. Yeah, so I think a lot of my research, because I am a person with a disability, I was born uh, with a disability, I've been in a wheelchair my whole life. Uh, one of the things that I've always noticed is how people's interactions with me are so radically different with my perceptions of self, about sort of who I am. Mm. Uh, so strangers will often come up to me and I will say things like, uh, oh, you're such an inspiration, or, or you're so brave, um, which is like a very weird thing to say to someone who's a complete stranger to you. And I've never really understood it. I don't understand really why people think that I'm uh, brave or an inspiration um, when I'm merely doing what everyone else does. I'm living my life. I go and shop for groceries. I go to London Knights games. I don't really see where the inspiration comes from. And so that's really what got me academically curious in my undergraduate uh, degree to try and start to try and unpack why is it that people without disabilities see and think about disabilities so differently than those of us with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And even the fact that we have two categories, the disabled and the non-disabled, um, is, is kind of bizarre when you start to think about it. And so I decided to, to look into that and to try and understand it a little bit. And I think what's really amazing about popular culture, and particularly um, because most representations of disabilities are made by people that do not have disabilities, uh, is that in a very Freudian way, I think there's slips there's some slippage uh, in these representations. I think that we can actually see a little bit of that unconscious uh, desire, or as I discover, unconscious fear uh, around what it means to have bodies that fall apart. There's a little bit of noise there, as yeah. we like to conceptualize on, yeah. on the, this podcast. Absolutely. It's a lot more complex, uh, potentially, than people think. I think so. Yeah, as, as I've sort of dug down into it, um, as I stare into what I, what I call the fantasy of disability, um, I assumed that it was going to be uh, like a little well that I would just be able to put my bucket down in and, and pull water out of. And instead, uh, it appears as though it's more like an underground uh, lake uh, that may not have a bottom uh, as, I, as I continue to dig down and find new and interesting things about the ways in which non-disabled people are profoundly dysfunctional. So you call this the fantasy of disability? Can you expand yeah. on that a little sure. bit? Sure. It's very, very interesting. Absolutely. So I think that uh, what we're seeing right now uh, when, we, when we represent disability and the random encounter uh, when people come up to you and, and say these sort of bizarre things about inspiration and that, um, I think this is a reflection of a fantasy that has been developed and cultivated um, in a variety of ways within the non-disabled mind. Um, that is a response to repressed fears and anxieties around dependency and vulnerability. And so where many people without disabilities perceive that life with disability must be um, difficult, challenging, painful, um, isolating, unfulfilling, unvaluable in some way, 
all of these sort of fears are reflective of those repressed anxieties um, around childhood dependency, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, these ideas around uh, not being able to get uh, the needs of survival and to not be able to get what you want, to be impotent, mm -hmm. uh, and quite literally castrated. And so what happens is that to make ourselves okay with this terror, um, this uncanny terror um, that's both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time, uh, we generate these fantasies, um, these sort of dream ideals around making disability more palatable. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big ones that we dream up, one of the central features of the fantasy of disability is that there are two different categories of people, that there are disabled people and there are non-disabled people. Most people, when I talk to them, I say, oh, like, do you have a disability? And people say, oh, no, 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 I don't, I'm not disabled, um, which is interesting because if you start to unpack it a little bit and start to talk to them, you start to find out that we're actually all very close to that definition mm -hmm. of disability, depending on how we start to define it. Um, and so I think part of that fantasy is this assurance that the disabled are one kind of person and the non-disabled are a different kind of person, different paths different worlds separated yeah. always yeah. and so then the fantasy then starts to dream up all of these ways to try and ensure that that separation is kept and maintained uh so we fantasize about this idea that uh disabled people really can only associate with uh can be really understood by other disabled people um that mixed company is not necessarily uh, a great way because the non-disabled could never understand life with a disability because they're so far from it. Mm -hmm. They're so just cognitively different that they would never understand it. And so therefore disabled people in popular culture often only date each other, befriend each other. Um, they, they shall never intermix. And when they do intermix, it often goes badly. Um, that it's often, often either a dependent relationship or it can become actually a violent relationship in which disabled people are, are believed to be angry at the non-disabled uh, and vengeful. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, they want to like disable other people, um, rather like a disease yeah. uh, that's spreading. Um, and so as you go down the rabbit hole, you start to see the ways in which so much of the way we talk about disability are rooted in these two ideas. This idea that one, disabled people, not disabled people are different. Mm -hmm. And number two, that disabled people inherently, ultimately want to be cured. Mm -hmm. um, because why wouldn't you? If you could not walk, you must obviously want to be able to walk again. If you could not see, you would want to be able to see again. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a powerful drive uh, for the non-disabled. And I think it's a powerful fantasy because it quells the fear of, if I become disabled, what if I stay disabled? The promise of cure says, it's okay. You don't need to worry about that. That disability is a category that you can transition in and out of, which may be true. Um, but I don't know if that actually is reflective of our, our lives. In fact, I would, I would imagine that most of us probably spend more of our life with some sort of disablement um, than those who spend time as non-disabled. This is so fascinating to me because it, it seems um, as if we get one sort of stereotype in popular media. And, and I'm thinking about to bring it back to our friend Drake. Absolutely. I'm thinking about shows like Degrassi and shows like Glee that show uh, or that represent uh, disablement in a very specific and a very dichotomous 
uh, uh, point of view or, Absolutely. Or, or way, which you're, you're talking about here. And from what I'm gathering in this brief discussion so far, you're tracing this to a, a social anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, for sure. I think, I, I, I think that a lot of these representations are about anxiety and about mm. working through the anxieties of vulnerability. Um, so, you know, Julia Kristeva, a French um, psychoanalyst, says that uh, she believes that disability causes a, a narcissistic identity wound on the non-disabled, that um, we damage that narcissistic sense of bodily wholeness, um, that sense of, of control and mastery over the body. And so as a result, this anxiety then starts to bleed out into some really interesting things. And so often when we represent physical disability, um, it is almost always a male character. Um, very rarely, it is very difficult to find female characters with physical disabilities, particularly wheelchair users. Um, it is very rare, yeah. very, very rare, because for whatever reason, that's not a story we want to tell. But the story we do want to tell, for some reason, seems to be always about men in wheelchairs struggling with their sexuality and struggling with their impotence. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all these sort of perceptions that disabled people are impotent, that they are unable to perform sexually, uh, which is obviously not true. Mm -hmm. um, lots of disabled people have sexual lives, um, whether they're physical or not. Um, but that's what these stories tend to focus on. So when you look at things like Degrassi, when you look at things like Glee, both of these characters, Jimmy Brooks and, and Artie Abrams, both of them are centrally focused on their inability to perform the duties of masculinity as somebody who uses a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because it really reveals to us a little bit about masculinity, this idea that, that men are, um, that they are movers. Uh, they are the ones that are moving the world, changing the world, controlling the world, dominating the world. And therefore, if you are a man and you are in a wheelchair, uh, you are disabled, you are now dependent on other people, you are now powerless, or at least less powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and that power dynamic or that power struggle, that anxiety of losing power, seems to then play out through these conversations around sexual impotence. So both Jimmy Brooks and Artie Abrams uh, have a really hard time finding a girlfriend. And Jimmy Brooks, quite literally, um, in Degrassi, is only able to attain an erection in two very specific places. He cannot get an erection with his non-disabled girlfriend, but rather he gets an erection when he is at physical therapy, so in the hands of the medical establishment, mm -hmm. or when he starts to date another person in a wheelchair, a woman in a wheelchair, one of the rare uh, women in wheelchairs in, in popular culture. So this idea that uh, the disabled man is impotent in the face of a non-disabled woman, but they regain their status either through the assistance of medical science or when in the presence of a disabled woman gives us this hierarchy of ability um, and the ways in which masculinity has to struggle with that, which I don't think is necessarily really descriptive of most disabled people's lives. It, it seems like those are two of the tropes here the, yeah. that that 
people who we might label or we might uh, approach as uh, uh, on one side of the dichotomy, uh, on the disabled side of this dichotomy, feel most comfortable either in the medical establishment, in healthcare, yep. or with other people on that side of uh, our societal uh, dichotomy. And I think it's in part because we subsume those two worlds, that the disabled world is the medical world, mm. um, that they are one and the same. It is where the disabled are. So when you look at um, sort of non-casted or non-credited characters in films and TV that are disabled, most typically those are characters you're going to see in the background at a hospital. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you see them. You don't typically see wheelchair extras that are just like hanging out at uh, a diner yeah. uh, or who are at Starbucks. In the of Times Square. Yeah, you don't typically see that. Um, it's starting to change. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a little bit of it. And then there's also some really weird things like, for example, uh, The Walking Dead is an interesting show because a lot of disabled actors have suddenly gotten a ton of work through The Walking Dead, particularly amputees, yeah. as zombies. Yeah. Um, and so there's actually been this like boom for disabled actors because of The Walking Dead, uh, which is strange. But I guess it's maybe one of those like master's house with the master's tools. Mm. Uh, first, we will be zombies, and then we will maybe have our own stories after. This is, this is a fascinating take. It seems to be, it's very interdisciplinary. And I, and I know from speaking with you in the past and um, seeing what, uh, what you're doing in terms of research that, uh, and you work in an interdisciplinary um, field of, yeah. of disability studies. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that about what you bring. And it seems to be your work is, on the one hand, very media studies, uh, and your doctorate is in media studies, It is, correct? yes. Yep. Yeah, so very media studies. But on the other hand, there's this like psychoanalytic side yeah. um, that is it's coming out and it's never sort of come out in our discussions before, but it's yeah. so fascinating. I think as I just started doing this project, I realized that um, the answer of disability is not going to be in one place because disability itself is not in one place. Uh, and so as I start to pull things apart uh, at the start of my PhD, I realized, you know, you can't actually tell this story without actually looking back at the history. Mm. Uh, so suddenly there's a history component to it. And then you start saying, okay, well, but then as you start looking at this history side um, and you're trying to combine that with the cultural side, you start to wonder, well, wait, isn't there some really popular media text in history that kind of dominated the world for, the, for a while? Oh, right, the Judeo-Christian Bible. Oh, guess what? Much of the way we talk about disability now is exactly the same way that we were talking about it in the Bible mm. thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, so we're, we're kind of in the same place. Yeah. We haven't actually moved that much further. So now we've added sort of religious studies into it. Um, and then you start thinking more about culture um, and about the ways that culture is structured and the ways in which why are there not more disabled people in uh, the film industry, in the television industry, um, I would imagine that part of that is because of the ways that our society is structured. Um, so many people with disabilities live in poverty. Um, mm -hmm. Many of them struggle to get through the schooling system, not because they don't have the ability, but simply because the schooling system is normative in nature and isn't designed for people with alternate learning abilities or skills or needs. Uh, so a lot of people don't get out of high school, for instance, don't get post-secondary. Um, and so you have this sort of group of people that are completely marginalized um, in horrifyingly statistically high numbers. Um, so now you've sort of brought in this sociological piece to it. Um, 
and our favorite piece yeah absolutely <laughs> it's a, it's a good place to be um and and then i i sort of said well you know at the end of the day all of those things are really interesting and i think part of that question of how did we get here that's a very interesting question where are we right now i think that's a very interesting question mm-hmm. um but i think we also do need to look internally and to look at the ways in which disability is a cultural manifestation and it's a cultural manifestation that we need to tackle the ways in which our internal biases are propagating and forming this world. And so while my research really started uh, in the media space, and it continues to be in the media space because I'm a huge nerd and I watch a lot of TV and movies, I read a lot of comic books. But um, the other question now is, well, if the fantasy of disability results in us telling stories about disability that are not frankly that relative uh, or, or reflective of actual lived experience of disability, then what else is this fantasy perhaps messing up? And I think that as I am looking outward now, I'm starting to see that many of the same mistakes that we make in our media production, we also make in our policy creation Mm. and program development. And so when you look out at the world, the people who are predominantly making decisions on the policies and programs that are around those with disabilities, these are people that by and large identify as not having a disability. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we see a lot of the same themes starting to kind of come to the surface in terms of who we think the disabled are and what type of help we think that they need. Um, We chatted about this a little bit earlier, but Rosemary Garland Thompson uh, has developed this very interesting concept of the normate subject. Yes. And what I find really, really interesting about your work is you're sort of flipping that, flipping the script here and saying that, yeah, we have these media representations and you and I have that in common in terms of interest (laughs) um, because I am obsessed with media representations. Absolutely. But you're flipping that and saying, like, it doesn't just tell us about the representation of uh, people um, with disabilities. It actually tells us a lot about this normate subject. Yes, yes. Fill us in. About my other. (laughs) Yeah. So I think one of the things that I I sort of tongue-in-cheek started my work in in grad school that I I loved, um, and it was a joke that only I understood or that only I knew was happening, rather. Um, It's not that complicated. I'm not that smart. Um, But so often, disabled people, myself included, have been the subject of study. Um, And so I sort of famously have this story um, many years ago when I was in grade 8, 13 years old. um, I had to have spinal cord surgery. And part of the process of of spinal cord surgery was a series of photographs. Um, So they took essentially before and after photos of the surgery, and those photos then went into a journal somewhere. Um, So I'm in a journal somewhere about spinal cord surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really weirded out by that, about like, well, what does that mean that I'm now like a subject of study, Mm -hmm. Um, that I am under the medical gaze, uh, so to speak, the gaze of the doctors, that I'm a, uh, a playground to be tinkered with. And so when I got into uh, the PhD program and I was going to move my way toward getting a doctorate, I sort of was joking with friends that I was like, aha, you know, now it is the disabled man's time to become a doctor and to turn (laughs) the medical gaze upon all of you, Mm. the non-disabled. And it turns out I'm not the only one that wanted to do that. Um, And so Rosemary and Garland Thompson um, has sort of constructed this idea of of the normate. And the normate is, is a playful term that actually 
was generated from Goffman. And in the world of disability studies, there's kind of a, a contentious relationship with Goffman. Um, some people think that Goffman was awful, awful to the disabled and that sort of thing. But I, I personally think that there's actually a lot that we can gather from stigma, um, mm. depending on how we read it, yeah. uh, obviously. That, um, you know, that's maybe a discussion for another day. So Rosemary grabbed this term of the normate from Goffman and, and sort of started to explore it and to say that there is this perception of uh, a normal person, yeah. um, that there is this normal person that exists out there. And it's a normal person that we all kind of strive to be. Um, it's a subject position that we uh, often assume ourselves to be a part of. Um, we say that we are normal, but it's also a figment of our imagination, that it's not actually something that we can really tackle down. Because when we start to think about, well, what is a normal person? Um, we start thinking about things like average height, um, white, male, athletic, probably has a partner, hetero, heterosexual, cisgendered, you know, maybe not blonde in terms of the whole like white supremacist uh, alienation <laughs> thing, but, uh, but maybe, um, but maybe. We have this idea of this normalcy that exists mm -hmm. that we all ascribe to, even though if we start checking off the box, the boxes many of us don't actually align with. And I think that the normate is, a, is an interesting piece of study. And my sort of usage of the term is to define those people that perceive themselves to be completely outside of the world of disability. Because I think that many of us are encroaching in or interlopers of the disabled world in lots of different ways that don't necessarily talk specifically to diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people like uh, my parents, for instance, although they don't have diagnosed disabilities, I think they have a pretty good understanding about life with a disability uh, through me. And I think that even my mom, specifically, um, when I was a child, she was disabled by me as much as I uh, am disabled by the world around me. She wasn't able to go to the stores mm -hmm. that I couldn't go with her to. Yeah. Uh, I guess she could have like left me on the sidewalk, but um, <laughs> thanks, Mom. Uh, you didn't do that. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Mom. Um, so she understood a little bit about that structural way in which we um, of aberrant bodies are, mm. are blocked from entry to certain places. And so I think the normate then is this subject who falls outside of that or believes that they do. And I hope that sort of through my work, that not only can we start to chart this, this idea of the normate, who they think they are, through um, basically a reflection of who they think the disabled are, mm. um, the belief being that they see themselves as the opposite or other than the disabled. But I'm also hoping that in, again, a tongue sort of in cheek moment, I, I hope that we can cure some of them uh, of this delusion as well. Um, I hope that we can show them that they don't need to be anxious about the impending fall, that they don't need to fear becoming disabled, um, because it's already happened. Uh, it happened when they were born, um, because unfortunately for them, the world in which we live is a world that's been built for normates, and none of us are the normate. Oh, that, that's, I love that flipping of the script, and it fits uh, very well with your work uh, in terms of uh, your work with mass media and your work in film, right? Flipping the script on the normate, if you will. Yeah, trying to. I think one thing that I that I really would like to do, um, and uh, and knock on your very elaborate desk, uh, which I think is wood. Um, I would hope that this I believe is wood. it's wood. Um, I hope one of the things that 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 I'll be able to do 
um, in the near future would be to uh, to start really supporting the creation of more uh, not just disability art, um, but I would really like to do some playful stuff around disability and media uh, and and maybe tackle some of those popular genres that are typically not disability genres mm -hmm. and and see what happens when we inject uh, disabled characters as dominant characters in say horror or say you know procedural cop drama um, science fiction mm. um, the places where disabled characters are never the leads um, they're usually just plot points and do you do you think that part of this I, I'm going to call it a misrepresentation. Yeah. Um, do you do you think part of this misrepresentation comes from the fact, or comes from the uh, a potential fact that uh, the people writing the scripts and the producers and uh, the funders and the people who are making decisions on these sets are part of the the normate world? I think that's a big part of it. Mm. Um, the other complicated part is I think that um, culturally we are really good at indoctrination. Um, and I think that there are a lot of disabled people that are suffering from mm -hmm. uh, the fantasy of disability just as much uh, as those that, that don't have disabilities that perceive themselves as, as normates. But I think that really from the media perspective, um, disabled characters are largely um, seen as objects, they're tools in order to do something within the story. To advance a plot, right? To advance a plot yeah. or to get an emotion. Mm -hmm. um, so you look at something like What's Eating Gilbert Grape, um, which is um, uh, basically pity porn uh, in a lot of ways, right? Like you watch that movie to f have a bunch of feels um, about Gilbert Grape and yeah. his little brother and, oh, ugh. You know, or I watch it and I vomit everywhere, <laughs> projectile. Um, but, but this is it. Right? We see these disabled characters as tools yeah. uh, within the film. And this is actually not dissimilar to what we do with a lot of other characters. So uh, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Laura Mulvey. Um, and I'm really interested. I really like her ideas around um, the scopophilic pleasure of watching and the ways in which women are objectified in film. And I think disability is happening kind of in the same way, but with a different end. Um, so whereas the female character is being portrayed as an object to be controlled, to be owned, to be had by the, by the male viewer and get pleasure from that. So it's the whole James Bond gets the lady, but in yeah. sort of way you get the lady because you're projecting yourself into the Bond character for some reason. Um, I think the disabled characters are similarly used um, as objects within film to predominantly um, make us feel certain ways, um, mm. to make us feel vulnerable, to make us feel pity, to make us feel sad, or the flip of it, the Stella Young side of things, of inspiration porn, uh, to make us feel joy, to make us feel strengthened, to be inspired, um, and more than anything, to feel comfortable, um, to feel like if I was disabled, people would like me and I would be okay, and people would pity me, and I would get what I want, people would take care of me, um, and some of that is true, um, but not all of it. It's very complex. It's very, it, it, it's when you peel back the onion of almost anything, and this is, uh, this is uh, not very different, and we could do this with other characters, as you mentioned, uh, in mass media, because uh, it seems to be um, we love stereotyping in that realm of social life. I think so, because I think part of the problem is that 
as the film industry has grown um, dramatically over the last 80 years or so, 60 years, depending on how you're counting, um, I think that our expectations for film in terms of depth has gone up. We mm. want more immersive experiences. We want deeper plots. We want more elaborate things. More dimensions. We want more dimensions. And in order to do this, um, shortcuts have to be taken in order to keep movies from being essentially the three-part Hobbit trilogy, because mm. um, that didn't work. <laughs> um, and so I think there are these shortcuts that we take that we've always kind of taken as storytellers, um, but the reasons that we take them now are a little bit different. And so back in you know, Homer's time, uh, a lot of the shortcuts that were taken then were around memory because it was a spoken culture. We were telling stories. So you had to be able to remember the story to be able to articulate it mm. by word. Um, whereas I think now, if you look at a sort of a political economy angle on Hollywood, um, there are tremendous financial pressures to, at one point, include diverse cast of characters to be marketable to a diverse audience, while at the same time ensuring that the big name gets most of the screen time to ensure that you have lots of room for explosions and 3D graphics and product placements and all those sorts of things that I think demands on filmmakers in terms of what they must include in their stories now has gone up dramatically, um, which has resulted in a watering down of everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, you look at the new Avengers movie, uh, for instance, which I didn't mind. Um, I haven't seen but it yet. I didn't mind. So I won't, I won't tell no you. Spoilers. Uh, the Titanic <laughs> sinks at the end. Um, but, um, but I think when you look at this film, um, it's, uh, it is like endemic of all these things where it's literally uh, a clip show. It's like, do you remember this character? Do you remember this character? Do you remember this one? Um, and this was a good job of uh, trying to pack in a bunch of elements that are purely there for the ability to spin this off into other mm. financially beneficial venues. Um, and that's like a whole other piece of the disability story that um, is not often talked about, that part of the problem, I think, in terms of representations of disability, uh, is that we as a disabled public, quote-unquote, are largely an unseen population, and we're not seen to exist. Um, so advertisers don't feel like they need to include necessarily disabled characters because disabled people aren't buying our products because disabled people don't exist, mm. uh, at least as far as we understand it. Um, so I, I think there's that, that financial side of things as well, that political economy side that makes it very difficult for disabled characters to get anything that would be a disabled character for disabled viewers um, because the perception is the people in the seats are normates. I, I want to change this up just a little bit. Yeah. And I want to, to, there was a question I had thinking about uh, or anticipating this podcast about Drake. Um, yeah. We love Drake on this podcast. Yep. Um, uh, we've talked about him probably in six or seven of our episodes. Yep. Um, Good. Continue. One of the things, so he played one of these characters. So yeah. he played Jimmy, Jimmy Brooks, Brooks. Um, in Degrassi. Yep. And then, and many people know that's how he got his sort of start in, in Hollywood. That's how it started. It's that, that it that's started it. From started the, from the bottom, the bottom. of Degrassi. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I'm really interested in, um, cause I don't know much about, drake's post uh degrassi career other than mm -hmm. uh, his his music and stuff yeah uh, and his ambassadorship with the, the toronto raptors has he become an advocate of 
uh, of dis of people with disabilities of um, uh, of anyone whom who might um, uh, have any issues or any relation to disabilities at, at all. I don't know that I would say advocate. Mm -hmm. um, advocate is a strong word. It's a very strong um, word in that you add voice, and I don't know that Drake has really added voice. Um, and and it's complicated, um, as are my feelings toward Drake. Uh, they are complicated. Love hate um, in a lot of ways. I think all um, that's our fascination, right? I, I think so. I think that we both love him and hate him. I love him um, because of my sort of my love for Freud, um, and I think that Drake is the exact person that Freud would love to have on on the couch, or maybe not, because I think. Drake is so transparent um, that Drake Maybe is like, wouldn't learn anything, like right? Drake is the like walking example of screen memory mm. in many ways. Because I think Drake, my favorite thing about Drake, and then I'll answer your question for real. My favorite thing about Drake is that Drake doesn't know who Drake is, but everyone else knows who Drake is based on the things that Drake says. Um, like Drake slips all mm. the time mm. in his music. Like, there are all of these lines that reveal way more about Drake than I think Drake intends. And so you're listening to music like, um, my favorite example, so one of his songs, um, he's having an argument with a girlfriend, which is by all of his songs. Um, so he's having this argument with a girl, and he is being accosted about how much intercourse that he has. Um, and the line is, um, I've had sex four times this week, I can explain. And I love this line, because I can just imagine Drake is sitting there with his pad of paper in his bubble bath, he's got his wine beside the, the bubble bath, you know, he's got some like, nice tones on, um, aromatherapy bath bomb. Um, and he's writing, and he's like, okay, so in this song, my character, Drake, needs to be accosted by this girl. And the, the, the accusation is that I'm oversexed, like that I'm having too much sex. And so Drake was like, what's a believable number that I can say I've had sex in a week that my listeners will believe? <laughs> so I can't say seven, because that's once a day, mm. and they're not going to believe that. And like one or two is too little. So I'll say four because that's every other day. And I'm like, you can see that analysis happening, which. And so for him, that was like a humble brag. Mm. Like, it's like, you know, I'm getting a lot. I have a lot of women. Women like me. But every listener is like, you've only had sex four times. Like you're famous. You're supposed to be this like woman guy with your chest full of bras, and you've only had sex four times? Like, Drake, really? <laughs> and, so, and then there's like millions of examples of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like even, like he has that line where he's like, um, that he wants to, uh, to buy his soldiers uh, a, a trip, just to see the looks on their faces. And I'm like, Drake, like that's not how people talk. Like people are not like, oh, I'm just gonna buy like a nice little trip from my soldiers. So I just want to see their eyes light up, you know? Like, I'm like, yeah. you think this sounds so, like, cool and so macho and so butch, and, like, that's not mm. at all mm. it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why, like, I love, I love Drake. I love Drake for that, because I don't think he knows the ways in which he leaks mm. his truth without knowing it mm. as he attempts to brag about this fake persona um, the Drake persona, where really I think 
we're often hearing Aubrey Graham by accident. Um, it, it's either slippage <laughs> or it's true art, and he is... Maybe. I don't think so, though, because I've watched a lot of interviews with Drake. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, um, but I am an educator. Uh, and I would say that um, he wouldn't be the strongest student in my class, um, to say the least. So I don't know that there's maybe this sort of high art to it. But I do think, interestingly, that particularly on Views and sort of post-Views album, um, Drake has finally figured out that if he leans in to the memes about himself, that he will actually be liked more. Mm. Um, and so, you know, he, he starts that song with like, why you gotta fight with me at Cheesecake? And I'm like, that line was clearly placed in that song because they knew that it was going to blow up because mm. they were like, that's so Drake. Drake likes eating at the Cheesecake Factory. What is happening? Um, so I think that he started to lean into it a little bit now. And sort yeah, of and his behavior it. at at the the Raptors games would, would highlight that as well. It's sort of like, yeah, like that's Drake. He's sort of leaning into it now, yeah. and I, and I'm like, that's all I've ever wanted for him, right? Like I think, um, not that I'm Drake's therapist, but <laughs> um, if I was his therapist, I would just want Drake to be comfortable mm. in his own skin, and I think that that's something. If we look at his career. What's interesting about the Wheelchair Jimmy character is that if nothing else, Wheelchair Jimmy reveals to us um, the, I don't want to say insecurity, but just the lack of comfort that Aubrey Graham had in who Aubrey Graham was, is, will be. Um, and I think that he was kind of working through those things through the Wheelchair Jimmy character in some ways. Um, we know that Degrassi uh, very regularly would talk to the actors and include parts of their own personal life into these characters. Mm. Um, so that famously, um, uh, the, one, the one main uh, woman, um, McDonald, I can't remember her first name right now, which I feel really bad about. Um, but anyway, she had a whole storyline around eating disorders um, because she had an eating disorder. Um, and so they were like, well, let's use it. Like, let's, let's tell your story essentially through your character. And, uh, and so I think that it obviously there is some Drake kind of coming out there. And I think that we see in the same way that Drake, uh, Wheelchair Jimmy, is this character concerned about being a man and about being um, a certain kind of man. That is something that has dogged Drake through his entire career. Mm -hmm. That leaving Degrassi and getting into the music game, he has constantly struggled with this idea that he wants to be seen as a quote unquote real man. PM, trademark, but he never quite gets there. He never quite reaches that bar. Um, and so I think what, what's kind of interesting, to get back to your question now that I've rambled about Drake for like an hour, <laughs> is that unfortunately, because of the way that Drake left Degrassi many, many, many years ago, things did not go well when he left Degrassi after season eight. And he essentially vowed that he would never have anything to do with Degrassi ever again. And as a result, he's only referenced Wilshire Jimmy twice. Uh, in music. Um, he sometimes references Wiltshire Jimmy um, in concert, but not for a very long time. And he's kind of just like disconnected himself from it entirely. That's the sense I get as well. Yeah, he's completely disconnected. And I don't know that that necessarily has a lot to do with the disability aspect of it so much as this sort of negative experience that he had. Mm. And he sort of is like, because it's like, talk about all time bad timing. Degrassi basically burns Aubrey Graham six months later. 
Aubrey Graham drops um, So Far Gone EP mm-hmm. and gets like a Sprite deal like a month later mm-hmm. and is like this super mega star out of nowhere. Yeah. So yeah, you bet on the wrong horse, Degrassi. <laughs> uh, you swung and you missed. And so I think in many ways for Drake now, it's like, it's like you didn't make me. I made myself. Mm. You know, you cut me loose and I got bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that Drake is Obi-Wan Kenobi, but Degrassi struck him down and he became more powerful than they could ever imagine. Yeah. And it just seems like maybe... And now that we're we're talking about some of this, you clearly know uh, about Drake more than I do, and uh, about <laughs> all of this much more than I do. But it seems now that almost that negative experience might have quashed some of his opportunity to really be an advocate um, for a community that he once represented, or or he once was portraying uh, a character. I wonder if that's part of it. Now I know that every once in a while you'll see him post an Instagram photo of someone in a wheelchair that he's with so he seems to be doing the sort of like make a wish mm-hmm. kind of stuff um i've always dabbled with the idea that i should put in a make a wish request to meet drink so i'm like i wonder if they would say no that is like just because i have a phd and i'm a tenure track professor and i'm in my 30s does that really disqualify me from make a wish <laughs> foundation um we're all dying mm-hmm. you know I'm dying. Matter, that's for I'm sure. dying just like anybody else, mm-hmm. and I want my wish, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, to spend a night with the champagne poppy. Um, I just want to get him on a couch, on some nice rosé, some nice music, and I just want to get in there. I just want to really dig into that mind, um, find out what's going on, and then when I fix him, um, <laughs> then um, you know maybe I'll be his new forty. I could be his new <laughs> new forty. Should be uh, that'd be good. That would be terrible. I have no musical ability. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. But my memes are far spicier than most. So maybe that's what I need to be, actually, is meme producer yeah, instead can, of musical producer. Hey, who knows? His, his empire is ever expanding. So, Absolutely. Uh, maybe Absolutely. there will be a, a spot there. And I wouldn't want to replace Noah. Noah Shabib. Um, I, my my like deep state conspiracy is that it's like a Hannah Montana kind of situation. And that 40 is actually like the genius behind all of this and drake is just like saying the words that are given to him i uh that's my that's my deep state conspiracy <laughs> it's very interesting very interesting so i want to close up um we're we're reaching that time i don't want to yeah. hold you here all uh, all evening yeah no no problem um, but i do want to speak a little bit about your advocacy work and i've noticed in in the year that i've known you you do tons of amazing work <laughs> um that i can see and and tons of keynotes and all of this really really interesting um stuff so i'm really uh interested in uh, maybe if you could give or speak a little bit about sure. some of this work that you're doing sure so i think it's funny because obviously i'm a, a tenure track professor i'm at a relatively large university um with the big purple uh, engine chugging along across Richmond Street with us, which we are a part of. So this is an, an ironic statement, I suppose. That's not the right word. Uh, irony is it's never irony. It's never irony. Uh, but interestingly, if nothing else, that I've I've always felt kind of disconnected from the academy, and in part because I think the disabled population are often rejected by the academy. And so I think when I look at my work, I've always seen or thought that. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a part of the academy and whatever, I'm doing my work, um, but that my work is really going to be facing externally and not internally. Um, but if the academy doesn't want to have discussions around disability, that's fine. 
because I think it's more important that we have these discussions out in the world and not just have um, a group of people having these discussions exclusively. Those discussions are really important, obviously, in the academy, and I'd like to be a part of those too. But um, my, my real sense is that I have the ability to bring some value externally because at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I'm a disabled man. I'm a white, cisgendered, heterosexual man with physical disability. I've had tremendous privilege in my life to be able to be where I am. And very, very few others have had such advantages, privilege, and frankly, luck to be able to get to where I am. And so I feel like I can't just sort of sit here in the ivory tower when my brothers and sisters are out there um, sitting out there, not having access, not moving forward, and largely being um, dismissed or just outright ignored. Um, by our general population, by mass culture. Uh, and so I have, I spend a lot of my time going out uh, and talking, um, talking about my experience, talking about uh, the problems in the world, problems that I've faced myself and problems that I see day to day for people living with all sorts of disabilities, not just physical, but intellectual disabilities, um, visual, cognitive, uh, mental illness. We are all sort of one giant population that too often doesn't talk together mm. um and so much of my work uh, externally is about going in and talking to places to try and get people to think a little bit about the ways in which perhaps perhaps i'm not disabled by muscular dystrophy but rather uh, i'm disabled by the normative structures of our world that imagine that everyone that's going to walk through your door have two arms two legs two eyes two ears a nose a mouth and a mind that all work in about the same way as 79% of the rest of the population, which is, of course, not true. Mm -hmm. And the other side of it being that if we actually start to design diverse spaces, if we start to design spaces that are uh, expecting the diversity of human existence, um, that's actually better for everybody, that accessibility is not just about disabled people getting access, but rather it's about saying we as a world disable people all the time. Mm. whether or not they have a medical diagnosis and that maybe we shouldn't do that that maybe that's not just and maybe that these are all things that we do simply because it's how we've always done them um so we need to think differently about the world so i do keynote speeches um fairly regularly i get asked to do quite a bit of stuff like that always happy to go and talk to people i do a lot of work at city hall um i like to cause trouble there uh whenever whenever possible um, and somehow got onto uh, the Committee of Adjustment while I was um, while I'm there, which is a fun little committee that talks about bylaws in the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've sort of moved my way up the ladder. So I've spent some time uh, working with the uh, Ministry of Community and Social Services back in the day, uh, writing part of the AODA to try and do it differently. Mm. Um, and I think the AODA actually, although it has tremendous problems, massive, ginormous problems, I think that the triumph of the AODA is much like I've been saying, that when you don't have disabled voices at the table, you do things that are wonky. I think the AODA has gotten quite a few things right, in part because there was a requirement under the AODA, which says that there's got to be 50% disabled population at the table at all times. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the AODA is much better than a lot of the legislation that's out there uh, in the world. That's a good thing. We should be proud of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been involved in sort of those sorts of things. And then I just like to cause trouble. I think that uh, like art and activism are, are sort of the, the lifeblood of, of my life. It's how I keep going. 
Um, so I did a, a webcomic for a while called Crips, uh, a webcomic um, that was just about two boys with disabilities and uh, uh, ran out of time to do that because life gets in the way. But we also developed through Crips, uh, one of the main characters in the, in the story, um, Rhett, uh, was this character who he was basically like, um, like Malcolm X, like disabled Malcolm X mm. on steroids, like hyper radical, like ready to like take out the world. So when we we're doing character development, the idea was this is the guy who's gonna like plant a bomb on a on a bridge and be like, if I can't use the bridge, no one can use the bridge. He's radical. Yeah. And so we were like, well, what would a radical teenager do to like mess with the world? And we're like, well, obviously you can't buy bombs. It's like a 14-year-old. But what would he do? And so we came up with this idea, uh, which we call stair bombing. And so the concept of stair bombing is... Uh, <laughs> this is so bad. So humans are afraid of yellow caution tape. Mm. They will not cross it. Um, it says caution, and they're like, mm, nope, not messing we with that. We are very conditioned people. I'm going to die. I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I... And you can buy yellow caution tape for a dollar. It's a dollar store. Yeah literally a dollar at the dollar store uh and it's handy because it's sticky um it sticks to itself so what we do is um we go around and close down stairways um we just put some caution tape across it and and then we put a little sign that says um these stairs are out of service you can't use them and then on the bottom it says this is really annoying isn't it having to try and get in somewhere but not having access mm -hmm. this is the experience of disabled people constantly as they go out around into the town and find that most of the places that Londoners, that Ontarians, that Canadians uh, know and love to go to, quite a few of these places are not accessible to those with disabilities. So the idea was to get people to stop and think and be like, oh, that's kind of funny. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, people hate it. Um, people are furious. It I is like that we have done something horrible to their family. Um, the amount of hate mail uh, that we received from this, people being like, you have no idea what an inconvenience it was for me to not be able to get up these stairs. And I'm like, yes, please, sir, tell me more about the inconvenience about not being able to access That's a meme right somewhere. There. And I'm like, you know, it's tape, but you would just walk mm -hmm. under it mm -hmm. or you could rip it down. And if you got my email address, that means that you know that this was essentially a prank. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, the other big one I got was people say it was a fire hazard. Um, they said, no, it's a fire hazard. You can't shut down yeah. stairways, which, uh, you know, I guess maybe. I sort of suspect, like, if people are going to throw, like, a chair through a window and climb out a window if there's a fire, they're probably going to just run through that yellow tape like it's a finish line <laughs> yeah. on their way after a marathon. Yeah. But, um, but I think that, that ways in which we can get out into the world and mess around uh, and play, I think, are really important. I think that that's a part of... Uh, disability justice mm -hmm. and so you know i think there's a, an amazing dance group in philadelphia a disability dance company and uh, they often go out and they do sort of impromptu i don't want to say flash mob because flash mobs are lame and that like thank god it's dead um it had, needed to die had their moment needed to die but they sort of do like flash mobs where they basically have these like dance routines that they've orchestrated and then they can go to public places and perform them kind of impromptu mm -hmm. because the idea was well if we advertise then it's only going to be the usual suspects that are going to come and see our show but if we just like go to the liberty bell yep. and do a dance whoever's there is going to watch this and then they'll be like why are all these disabled people dancing and then they're going to be like oh man disabled people can dance <laughs> 
And that's a huge step forward yeah. for the disabled population. So I think that tries to be the types of things that I try to do. Um, is to sort of have fun with it and to try and make us think differently about the world and think differently about the ways in which we structure people out of this world. And I don't think that's just disabled people. I think that's uh, racialized uh, individuals. I think that's women. I think that's absolutely indigenous people. Mm. Um, I think that we're very good at um, building people out of the world. And hopefully through disability activism and as we start to liberate people with disabilities, hopefully that justice can also spread out then to other populations that are similarly uh, disabled by the structures that we've erected around them, uh, whether they be colonial structures, whether they be justice structures, um, whether they be land treaty structures. Mm, I, I completely agree. And that's a, a sort of a theme of this podcast is trying to, to build an inclusive discussion uh, about a variety of topics. And I want to close with this final question, and you've touched on this completely throughout this entire <laughs> perfect. Um, Did my job. <laughs> this entire <laughs> podcast is just: um, what do you think are some of the, if not the biggest, barrier to a, an inclusive society for everyone? Yeah, um, really, and this is like this is such a biased answer. Um, I, I honestly think that it's this idea of normalcy. Um, I think that if we look at much of the discrimination that people face, it is rooted in this idea that there is a normal, that there is a normate, and that none of you people are fitting within it. Mm. Um, and so Foucault um, talks about this a little bit, right, in this idea of biopower, that it is the exceptionalities that are then targets of disciplinary power mm -hmm. that need to be brought back in line with that normal category in the middle. And so I think that the more that we look internally at ourselves and say, it is okay to not be normal. Um, it is okay to be diverse. Like it is okay that we don't do things the same way, that we don't have the same desires, that we don't have the same um, drives or motives. The more that we look at ourselves and say, our bodies and our minds functionally work differently um, from person to person. And that that difference in fact, binds us together. That it was that difference that caused us to form communities in the first place. That rather than being afraid of the ways in which we are different and the ways in which people's perceptions and expectations or desires are different than our own, rather than seeing that as a threat to ourselves, to our power, to our agency, to our quote-unquote way of life, and see this diversity as rather a way of amplifying, strengthening, and enriching our way of life, our existence, I think that is part of the way that we start to break down a lot of the barriers that are faced by people, not just those with disabilities. But I think um, if you look to the United States, for instance, where you have this sort of concept of America, what America is, without, and I hate talking about, about Trump, but I think that when you look at a lot of the Trump supporters, one of the most important things that we need to be hearing in this sort of debate is this fear of losing a way of life, this sort of perception that people feel like they're losing something that exists. And as Baudrillard would say, um, America is simulacra. It's um, a simulation. It is not real. Um, it is without referent. Um, and if we can relax and realize that um, and say, let's stop trying to make America great again, but rather, let's just make America great. 
mm-hmm. and realize that that greatness has nothing to do with the past and the history that we have followed through on, that the history or the, the future of America is not based on where they have been, but rather where they are going. In the same way, the future of Canada is not based on necessarily where we have been, but on the, on the country that we build fundamentally. If we can let go of that desire for this sort of non-existent normalcy, this normalcy without reference, I think that we can actually move forward then with the types of diverse communities that we actually would really benefit from rather than isolating ourselves off and becoming, uh, you know, that like culture on the island that just finds out that, you know, the world has progressed 100 years and they're still, you know, banging rocks together and eating frogs. Um, So, uh, you know, I hope that as a culture, as a society, Canada and the United States, I have all of us sort of realize that we benefit from our difference, that we are made better by the ways in which we don't agree, that we're made better by the ways in which we do things differently, but that we need to build a world that's ready for that difference. Mm-hmm. So we need to build spaces that are ready for different forms and functions to expect the difference rather than to discipline back to normalcy. Uh, I think that's the root. I think that's the core. That's the core of the problem. Mm-hmm. So I solved it. I fixed it. There we go. <laughs> and you cited Foucault, yep. Goffman, Baudrillard. <laughs> this is like yep. a, a sociologist's <laughs> dream uh, podcast. And I think... Uh, you raise some very, very interesting points, and and uh, I I would agree that a lot of our societal issues come with this idea of normalcy. That there is an average person, that there is a statistic, an aggregate that we can identify yep. and then try to get closer to. And any deviations yep. from that norm, we can funnel back towards the norm. And yep. Foucault talked about or it. Or eject. Yes. <laughs> Foucault talked about it in, in punishment, in terms of crime. He talked about it in terms of mental health, sexuality. Yeah, sexuality especially. Uh, and I think that in, in many spheres of life, um, uh, it's that striving to get to this, this normal that doesn't exist, the simulacra, yeah, as yeah. you put it, and yeah. as Baudrillard would, would put it. That is very, very fascinating. Yeah. So I think, I think we need to end this podcast Absolutely. with a uh, Danny DeVito quote, um, which is, um, we got to get weird with it, you know? <laughs> it's time to get weird with it. Let's just, let's embrace the weird. Let's embrace the weird. Embrace That's the a weird. perfect place to be. <laughs> so, Jeff, if anyone wants to find out um, more about the work that you do, um, Twitter handle, here's yeah. the time for, for a shout out. So if you want to find me on Twitter, um, my Twitter is really boring. It's mostly just hot takes while I'm trying not to mark. I don't think it's um, boring. So, I follow you. And- yeah, at Jeff Preston. Um, there's a lot of weird stuff on there. I do keep it weird, uh, for sure. Uh, so you can find me on, on Twitter, at Jeff Preston, uh, my website, uh, which I neglect a lot, uh, which is uh, jeffpreston.ca. Um, and if you see me on the street, uh, wave me down, flag me down, but literally you kind of got to get in front of me because when I'm driving, I tunnel vision. Uh, so if you're talking to me, I, you don't exist. You have to be an obstacle in my way and then I will stop and talk to you. That's good to know. So Next jump time. in front. I ne- promise I will. Well, I almost certainly will not run you over next time you're 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 going around campus and i'm gonna just jump right in front of you obstacles get my attention people don't (laughs) fantastic well jeff uh it's been great i've i've loved having you on and and chatting with you for the past uh hour and and four-ish minutes nice um so thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks for having me Thank you 
you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Tommy N. Cook. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Until next time, keep listening for the noise. Thank you.